And tonight we're going to be looking at the, the reign of David. And really, it's up to this point, right here in chapter 11, is really where the chronicler wanted to land. Because all of the genealogies basically got us to this point, to this point of David, because it's the Davidic dynasty through which who would come? Jesus. Yes, Christ. Christ would come through the line of David, through the line of Judah, and specifically through the line of David. And the greater David is the one that the Bible is speaking of when it refers in Genesis 49, verse 10, and when it refers to um, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16 and 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's all speaking and pointing our finger to the greater David, which is the, not only David's son, but David's Lord, Jesus Christ. And so we've landed, landed at, a, at a really wonderful spot here this evening. And you'll notice that as we go through now the Chronicles, we're going to see some familiar territory. We're basically going back and looking again at David's life. And if you remember... Uh, I don't know how long ago it's been now, but we went through First and Second Samuel. And when we got to Second Samuel, we really spent quite a bit of time talking about David. And so you're going to find that Second Samuel is going to, um, if you were to look at First uh, Chronicles here, beginning in chapter 11, and looking at Second Samuel chapter 5, and then just kind of following it that way, you're going to see some differences, but you're mainly going to see uh, the life of David, and then through the whole Davidic line, because there was one Davidic dynasty. And a dynasty, remember, goes from son to son. That's why it's called a dynasty. It means a king had a son, his son reigned on the throne. He had a son, and his son reigned on the throne. Now, with the northern ten tribes, that wasn't the case. They had nine different dynasties. They weren't necessarily coherent. In fact, there was a lot of chaos up north, in, uh, in, in Israel, and as you would suspect, when a country has started its foundation on idolatry, what can come from that other than chaos? Correct? Only chaos. What does the scriptures tell us in Romans 6.23? The wages of sin is death. Whenever we start out in a bad place, unless we repent, it's not going to end well. It never ends well. But the chronicler, who we believe is Ezra, could care less about the northern ten tribes. He's focused only on Judah and David, all the way through the end of, to Zedekiah when they're taken into captivity, okay? And so First and Second Chronicles, that's really what it is. It's the Davidic line from, uh, from David all the way down to Zedekiah, and then they're taken captive to Babylon. But if you look at with me at chapter 11 of First Chronicles, again, this is going to parallel Second Samuel chapter 5 to some degree, and the chronicler, perhaps Ezra, like I said before, he picks up with David's life beginning in 2 Samuel chapter 5. And that's what we're looking at right now in chapter 11 of 1 Chronicles is really just a, a, a recap, if you will, of what was spoken in 2 Samuel chapter 5. But what about the previous chapters? What about the, the, all the events leading up to David's kingship? how he ran from Saul, and even after he, was, he, he became king and was anointed king, there were a, a number of events that occurred that the chronicler decided not to include in this because his gaze, his, his focus is, is much further than on those things. He wants to get to David, and he's going to elevate the greater than David, through this whole thing. And that's really what it's all about. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about glorifying him through the line. And even God will be glorified in and through, even in spite of all of the mistakes that David made. And by the way, David, if you remember, or if you don't know, David is in glory. David right now is in heaven in spite of his mistakes. Did he repent? Yes, he did. Did he commit those same sins again? No, he did not. David's sin of adultery and murder 
It was a horrible time in his life, the lowest point of his life. But he turned from those things. God didn't allow him to be killed. He, he, he basically confessed his sin. As he was busted, he confessed it. It was, raw, it was eating away in him like cancer. And it was good for David to finally give it up and to, and to, to be brought into the light. But he turned, and David's life was never the same again in many ways. And he knew the depths of God's grace and God's love and acceptance and forgiveness. Very few people have that kind of experience, but David wrote some of the richest psalms in his repentance. Psalm 32, Psalm 51, many others, but psalms that really just encourage us because I don't know if uh, any of you here tonight are perfect and free from sin. Anybody here free from sin? Nobody raised their hand except Aiden. Just kidding. No, none of us. We, we have all sinned, right? And isn't it comforting to... Know that when you've blown it and you're guilty to go before the throne of God and confess your sins. And what is the promise? If we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us and then to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, that's the God we serve. That's the God that the world doesn't know. That's the, the, the God that the world doesn't believe in. But we need to tell them, right? So it's all about Christ. And right now, we're landing at ground zero now with David's life. But again, the chronicler doesn't share the events that happened uh, previously to 2 Samuel chapter 5. He doesn't mention those things. He, de he doesn't uh, mention the things after Saul's death. He doesn't mention David's battle at Ziklag and his recovery of all that the Amalekites had taken. The chronicler also doesn't mention David's mourning over Saul and Jonathan and his kindness to the men of Jabesh-Gilead for their care of Saul and his sons. The chronicler also doesn't mention that of David being anointed king over Judah first. He was king over Judah first, and then they anointed him again to be king over all of Israel. But that first anointing over Judah, it doesn't mention that. And it doesn't mention Ishbosheth, Saul's son, being made king over Israel by uh, Saul's captain of the guard, Abner. It doesn't mention the battle between Israel and Judah. It doesn't mention Abner killing Asahel, Joab's brother, with the sword when he was pursued by him. And Abner, Saul's captain, it doesn't mention that he defects to David after a disagreement with Ishbosheth concerning a concubine of Saul's that Abner had been sleeping with. Yes, these things remind us of. It's like a soap opera, isn't it? Seriously, you read. David's life, and it reads like the young and the restless. It looks like as the world turns, or as I like to call it, as the stomach churns. Or instead of the, blind, or the guiding light, I call it the blinding light. Right? It doesn't mention Joab, David's captain, killing Abner. And it doesn't mention Ishbosheth murdering, being murdered by his own men and his head brought to David. And then David seeing the head of Saul's son, Ishbosheth, brought to him. The two men thought they would be ingratiating themselves with this new king. And David's like, you don't understand, you don't know who I am, do you? And he ends up killing him as well. But the, it doesn't mention any of that. It gets right into his reign and his being coronated over all of Israel. So let's read it. It says, Then all Israel came together to David at Hebron, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. And indeed, this is true, isn't it? Because they all came from Jacob, the son of Isaac, and the, who was the son of Abraham. And we know that Jacob had 12 sons, and these sons had children, and they had children. But they were the 12 tribes who settled in Canaan, displacing those seven idolatrous pagan nations that were there prior Notice in verse 2, it says, also in time past, even when Saul was king, they, they were telling David this, 
Also in time past, even when Saul was king, you were the one, David, who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord your God said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over my people Israel. And therefore all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. And the city and all Israel went to Jerusalem, which is Jebus, where the Jebusites were, the inhabitants of the land. But the inhabitants of Jebus said to David, you shall not come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. Now David said, whoever attacks the Jebusites first shall be chief and captain. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, went up first and became chief. And then David dwelt in the stronghold, therefore they called it the city of David. And he built the city around it from the Milo to the surrounding area, and Joab repaired the rest of the city. And so David went on and became great, and the Lord of hosts was with him. And so we're going to stop right there and just go back and take a look at what we have just uh, looked at. But we've already looked at verse 1, but let's go back to verse 2, and it says, in time past, when Saul was king, that they, they made an, uh, an announcement. You were the one, David, who went out before us. You're the one who fought all of our battles. Notice that they remembered all the exploits that David had done on behalf of Saul and Israel and the battles that he won. David was an awesome warrior. It's an amazing thing. The man was a very gifted man, gifted musically. He had a, he had a, a great, an excellent spirit about him, even in spite of his sin and his shortcomings. And David was a warrior. He was also a shepherd. He was a man of many gifts that God had given to him. But notice these people, these men of Israel, upon anointing David as king over Israel, they were also aware of the promise that God had made to David. They were at least, there were, excuse me, at least four different times in the book of Samuel where either God was directly speaking about David's destiny or when man became aware of it. Let me do, you might want to write these references down, but I'm just going to read them to you for the sake of time. The first one is 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 through 13. And what this scripture passage is, is it was when God sent Samuel to anoint one of Jesse's sons. And it says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing that I have rejected him from, being, from reigning over Israel? So fill your horn, Samuel, with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself. Notice this. I have provided myself a king among his sons. Among Jesse's sons, God had already had it in his heart, a king already in mind. From the very beginning, even before they chose Saul, God had his mind. He's like, I'm not so concerned about Saul. That was your choice, Israel, but I've got a man who's on my heart. And he probably wasn't even born at this, when Saul, you know, or when, uh, when Samuel was, um, he was just a young man, actually, uh, David at this time. But he says, uh, but Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, take a heifer with you, which is a female cow, and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. So notice Samuel's got a specific thing to do. It's easy, isn't it? When God is in control and he tells you to do something, just do it. Don't worry about anything else. If he tells you to do something, just do it. It may not make sense. Everybody may be saying you're crazy for doing it. You just do the first thing and let everybody else's mouth drop when God does what he's going to do. But be obedient to the voice of God. Be obedient. How many of you want to be obedient? Raise your hand. Yeah, I'm putting you on the spot. Yeah, we all want to be obedient. And sometimes being obedient is just reading his word and knowing what it says. And then when a situation comes to pass in your life, be obedient to what has been revealed to you. And sometimes the Lord will speak to you in a moment. 
and speak to your heart in the still small voice and be obedient to it. And as you do, you're going to learn the voice of God. You're going to learn how he works with you. Because how you, he works with you may be a little different than how he works with somebody else. He's not into this cookie cutter thing. He'll speak to your heart. He'll speak to you through the, the Bible. He'll speak to you while you're listening to the radio in the car. He'll speak to you while you're reading your devotional from Oswald Chambers. It doesn't really matter. He can speak to you at any time. Trust me, God does not have a problem in interrupting your life. Even when you don't feel like it, even when you don't even care. And I can tell you 100% that God has spoken to me at times in my life. I didn't feel worthy. I wasn't expecting it at all. And he spoke, and it was so clear to me. There's no denying it. And then you simply need to step out in that. And when he speaks to you, you'll know it's him. You won't be thinking, well, is that just a voice in my own head? You'll know. And when you do, because whatever he tells you to do is not going to violate anything else in, this, in the Scripture. It's not going to violate his character. So Samuel did what the Lord said, and he went to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming, because whenever a prophet comes to your town, it's never a good thing. Usually it's for correction. So the elders of the towns trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And I'll just get to the point here. He goes and he has all of Jesse's sons stand before him. And he looks at the, the, the oldest one, Abinadab, and he's the tallest and the most handsome. And Samuel's going, that must be him. He's the, he's the firstborn. He's the tallest. He's handsome. He's got everything going for him. That must be the guy. And God says, no, that's not the guy. It's not him. Well, what about his next son? You can see this, you know, like you see those bumper stickers on people's cars where they got their kids and they're all like this. He started with Abinadab and he goes down and down and finally he gets to the seventh son and God's like, I haven't chosen him either. And so Samuel's going, is there anybody else? And Jesse's, yeah, there's the runt of the litter. He's out in the... David, he's out in the pasture. You know, he's out there with the sheep, which is the lowest job, shepherd. He's like, well, you better get him because we're not going to stop. We're going to stand until he comes. And so they bring him, and God said, that's the one. Anoint him with oil. And so he does. And, and he does. God says, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. And then Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. And so Samuel arose and went to Ramah. And another uh, passage in 1 Samuel chapter 23, verses 17 and 18. This was uh, God using another man, David's best friend, Jonathan. Remember, Jonathan was Saul's son, but Saul and David had this really wonderful relationship. And one time when uh, David was on the run from Saul, from chasing him, Saul wanted to kill him, and now his son comes to him, meets him in the wilderness of Ziph, and he says this to David. He says, and he said to him, Do not fear, David, for the hand of my Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be killed. King over Israel, and I will be next to you. Even my father Saul knows that. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed in the woods, and Jonathan went to his own house. So there's an instance where God had spoken to a man. How much he knew of what Samuel, you know, what God did with Samuel and David, how much of that got around, we don't really know. But Jonathan knew, and so did Saul. They knew there was something about David. There was something about him. And if they had looked into the scriptures, if they had only looked at, of course, Isaiah hadn't been written yet, right? Because we're talking about 1,000 B.C. But 300 years later, the Lord would prophesy of another one, Jesus Christ, the second or the, the greater than David Right in the first couple of verses. It's undeniable. He even names Jesse by name. It's incredible prophecy of the Lord coming through the line of Judah. But also, in 1 Samuel 24, 
Verse 20, remember when David, again, on the run from Saul, he was at En Gedi. Remember that fortress along the Dead Sea. We've been there. We've, we've crawled all around En Gedi, and it's a beautiful place. It's like an oasis out in the desert. It really is. And you can see the Dead Sea. It's right before your feet as you're there at En Gedi. But En Gedi was filled with caves, so many caves. And remember, David was hiding there, and David when Saul went into one of these caves to relieve himself, David and several hundred men were in the recesses of the cave in the dark place where nobody could see, and David cut off a piece of Saul's robe. And so Saul, after he was finished, he put on his robe, walked out, and he got some ways down the hill, and David comes out of the cave and he says, you know, and he says, Saul. <laughs> and Saul's like, David, is that you? He's like, yes. And they, they had a dialogue there. And then in verse 20, Saul said, And now I know indeed that you shall surely be king. Because David had the opportunity to kill his predator, the one who was hunting him like a dog. He, had, he would very easily have killed Saul on a couple of occasions. But Saul said, I know indeed that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand because David is compassionate. David is gracious. David is filled with the Spirit. David didn't take lightly killing somebody because he knew that killing somebody in cold blood was against the law of God. In the battle of war, it's a whole different thing. But David would not put forth his hand and kill the Lord's anointed. And that's what David said. But the greatest declaration was what, uh, what God said through the prophet uh, Nathan. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 8. It says, Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David. So now God is speaking to Nathan. And he wants to give this message, message to David. And he says, thus said the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And now I have been with you wherever you have gone and you've cut off and have cut off all your enemies before you and have made you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. And since that time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all of your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. Because David wanted to build God a house, but now God is saying, David, I don't need a house. I'm going to build you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, and this is God speaking to him, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your own body. And obviously he's speaking of Solomon in the very immediate, but also in the future. Seed, I, I believe, is singular there, so it's talking about who? Jesus. Because only some of these things that are spoken here could, could relate to someone who is God and not a mere man. And you'll see that. He goes, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So he, obviously speaking about Christ. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the son of men. Certainly speaking of Solomon now. But he says, but my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. How clear could it be? And there it is. So these men have come to David, and they say, we know. And either God gave direct divine intervention and spoke, or men had figured it out by God's uh, leading. Not to mention the prophecies concerning Jesus coming through the line of Judah, and more specifically the line of David. And we already looked at those, Genesis 49 verse 10, uh, Isaiah chapter 11 <clears throat> verses 1 through 10, and Micah 5 verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you be among the thousands of Judah, out of you shall come forth the one who is to rule, speaking of Christ. So they come, and therefore all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them at Hebron. Underline covenant there. 
as we're going to come back to that. He made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. So this covenant that David had made with the elders of Israel probably was what is recorded for us in Deuteronomy chapter 17. You might want to write that down, Deuteronomy 17, beginning in verse 14. Let me just read it to you, because these are one of the duties of, of kings, and these, this is something that he made a covenant with him, with the people of Israel. And, and here's what God had told the, the children of Israel. He says, when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Do you see what this is? This is prophecy. Do you understand? Because Deuteronomy was written back here in time. And now fast forward a few hundred years. And now here they are. God already told them. He told them back in Deuteronomy what they were going to do. I wonder if they realized that. Does that make sense? He goes, and when you come into the land which the Lord your God has given you, you possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are, that's exactly what they did. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. And you may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. But he, notice this, now this is such a wonderful passage because we see David messing up with this, and we see Solomon, David's son, really blowing it when it comes to this covenant that God had told them. And you'll see why in just a moment. Because what does it say? Neither shall you multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not turn that way again. Neither shall you multiply wives for himself. How many wives did David had? He had quite a few. He had at least six, maybe 12 or something like that. I don't remember exactly how many. Their, their names are listed. But what about Solomon, his son? A thousand. Can you imagine that? That's, that's a lot. I mean, I mean, think about that. What's your name again? I can't believe you don't remember our anniversary. Are you kidding me? He didn't buy me a cake or anything. Well, what do you want me to do? There's a thousand women in my life. He created problems for himself. That's why God wanted one man. Notice that. One man and one woman. Hallelujah. Can everybody say it? One man and one woman. Ready? Here we go. One man, one woman. One more time. One man, one woman. And they are to be married. That's the way it's supposed to be. God defined it. God has the right to tell us. And yet our culture is completely gone bonkers. But notice, neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. And it did with Solomon, didn't it? Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. And of course he did that too. Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book for the, from the one before the priests and the Levites, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he might not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. Very interesting and so very possible. This is the covenant that David made with those men. Remembering Deuteronomy. And he ought to have known it, and I believe that he did. But notice at the end of verse 3, it says, According to the word of the Lord by Samuel. According to the word of the Lord by Samuel. This was no doubt what we've already read. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, what I just read when um, uh, Samuel went to Jesse's house and, and the things that Jesse or that Samuel, or, or excuse me, Samuel said in the presence of David and all of his brothers and his father. So notice in verse 4. It says, And David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, which is Jabus, where the Jebusites were the inhabitants of the land. Now, if you remember God in his covenant with Abraham, he gave to Abraham's seed, the Israelites, the land of Canaan, including Jerusalem, which belonged to the Jebusites. 
It was previously called Jabez. You'll see some old maps and it'll say Jabez because it used to be called uh, Jabez because it was um, the, own, the, uh, the Jebusites were the ones who, who owned that land. And in Genesis 15, remember in the Abrahamic covenant, God said to Abraham, it says, on the same day, and this is uh, Genesis 15 beginning in verse 18, on the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, to your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cabanites, the Hittites, remember that, the Hittites, the, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. I've given you all that land. So all the land of the Jebusites, that would include Jerusalem. And God also, remember, reiterated the same promise to Moses and how he would use Moses to deliver his, to deliver his people from the oppression, remember, of the Egyptians God said in Exodus chapter 3, um, beginning in verse 6, he says, Moreover, he, God said, I am the Lord God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Remember the, the burning bush that wasn't consumed as Moses beheld it. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. For I know, I love this, I know their sorrows. Aren't you glad that God knows your sorrows? Maybe the things that you've been crying about this week and maybe nobody knows about it. Maybe you're heartbroken about something. And you may think nobody cares. You may think nobody cares. You know, my husband or my wife won't even listen to me. They're, they're fed up with whatever I'm dealing with, and they don't even want to hear it. And my best friend, they don't want to hear it anymore either. But do you know that God hears? He knows your sorrows. You can go to him. His ear and his shoulder is much bigger than anybody else's. You're not going to offend God by going and sharing with him the heartbreak of your heart. I would encourage you to do that. He says, so I have heard their sorrows, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. It's interesting, too, because later on in David's reign, somewhere in the middle or the... Um, or after the middle part of his reign, because David reigned for 40 years. Somewhere in that time, remember he numbered the people, and God brought a plague about, and it's recorded for us in First Chronicles 21 or in Second Samuel 24. And, and in order to stop the plague, David wanted to build an altar. And so he's living in Zion. Zion, if you were to look at, um, here is the Temple Mount today. And right to the south uh, of the Temple Mount is what is called Zion. And that's the area where David's palace was and where the tabernacle was before his son built the temple on top of Mount Moriah. Right up here at the top was a threshing floor, and it was right now where the Dome of the Rock sits. And that area back in David's time was just a grassy land. And that's where a man by the name of Arana, or his, his name, he's also called Ornan, he was a Jebusite who owned that land, and David bought that land from him. And Ornan, or Aruna, says, David, if you want the land, I'll give it to you to sacrifice to the Lord your God to stop this plague. And, and David you know, thanked him for the, his, this man's generosity. He was going to give him not only the, all the land up there, but give him the threshing instruments and all the things that he was threshing and the cows and the, the sacrifice. Everything was there for the sacrifice. He was going to give it to him, and David said, I can't do it. He goes, I cannot sacrifice to God what has cost me nothing. He goes, I'm going to give you the, the price, the valued price of it. And so he gave him 600 shekels of gold, and he paid for that land fair and square. And then he built the altar, and he sacrificed, and the Lord spared a great plague. So this is the place, Jabus. We know it now as Jerusalem. Notice in verse 5, But the inhabitants of Jabez said to David, You shall not come in here. 
Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. That is the city of David. Now, Zion, uh, today you can't tell as much because of erosion and because of you know, a few thousand years of, uh, of things that they've done up there. But at the time, it was a fortress. You, you, to attack that city, you had to come up to it, and it was very well fortified. And it had a river, a stream, going right through the center of it underneath. So you had plentiful water supply that the enemy didn't know anything about. And so you could just sit up there, as long as you had food, you, you were fine. A very impregnable city. And that's why David took it, because it was a stronghold, and it would be the great place for him to begin. But they said to him, David, you're not going to come up here. And David said, whoever attacks the Jebusites first shall be chief and captain, and Joab, the son of Zeruiah, went up first. Remember, David's sister, her name was Zeruiah, and she had three sons, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. And so Joab, his nephew... He goes up and he became chief. Now, it doesn't tell us here in Chronicles exactly what happened, but in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 8, it tells us a little bit more information. And, and this is fascinating to me because we've been to this place and there's something about visiting the land of Israel when you've been reading about it all your life and you've been reading in Sunday school and all of a sudden you visit the location of where these things took place. There's something that will just change your life forever. And this was one of them for me, because we, we walked through Hezekiah's tunnel, which they've excavated uh, the city of David, Zion, over the, since 2007, roughly. They began to discover that that indeed was what the Bible says it was. And there were caverns and, and pathways underneath the city, and we go into those places today. But Samuel, 2 Samuel 5, verse 8 says this. Now David said on that day, whoever climbs up by way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites shall be chief and captain. A water shaft. They knew about a water shaft in this city that was its Achilles heel. David knew about it. And he says, whoever can go up there up into that water shaft and take the city will be first. And so Joab, he goes up into that water shaft and he shimmies himself up. And once he gets there, he realizes he calls the other guys. And they can do this in the, in the middle of the night when nobody's looking. And pretty soon you got a whole bunch of guys up there able to take over the city without much of a problem, right? And that's exactly what they did. And in 1867... There was a shaft, a, a water shaft, a vertical shaft, next to the Gahon Spring, which is the spring that is below the Temple Mount, or below the city of Zion there. And, and we, we, we tour this when we go to Israel. And if you come to Israel with us next year, you'll see this by yourself as well. But a British engineer and archaeologist by the name of Sir Charles Warren in 1867, he came upon this water shaft and we, many believe, now this is not a, a slam dunk, but many believe that this is the location where Joab penetrated the city of the Jebusites. And I, I don't want to just tell you, I want to show you a picture or a little uh, video that I took of it. So this video is literally me, me standing over this water shaft taking a video, and I want to show it to you now, because this hole was probably much narrower back in David's time, and as time went, erosion and stuff, it got a little bigger, but not much bigger. But this is the shaft that Warren, um, Charles Warren discovered, and many believe, many believe, not everybody, that this is the thing. And I'll just show it to you, because I think it's fascinating. So here, here we go. Oops. Turn the wow. Looking straight down. Pretty interesting, isn't it? It's just a water shaft, and, that, and that's where they believe Joab was able to get up inside the city and, and take it over. So going back to verse 7, I, did, I couldn't resist it. I couldn't resist showing you because it was, uh, it's, it's just wonderful to stand there and see because uh, that's the only one that they, they know of. And, um, 
and it had to be found. So anyway, so then David, verse 7 in our text, dwelt in the stronghold after it had been taken. Therefore, they called it the city of David, and he built the city uh, around it from the Milo to the surrounding area, and Joab repaired the rest of the city. This word, the Milo, literally stands, it means the landfill. And the landfill, it's basically this area between the Temple Mount, like we, if you were to see the Temple Mount, looking at it sideways, there's Zion, the city of David, and there's a Temple Mount. Today, you'll notice that there, it kind of goes down like this. Well, this area right in here is called the Ophel, or it's also called the landfill, or the Milo. And that's what is being referred to here. And so David, verse 9, went on and became great, and the Lord of hosts was with him. Now the next section, verses 10 through 47, is nearly identical uh, with 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 8 through 39. It's almost verbatim uh, with what we see in 2 Samuel 23, verses 8 through 39. However... This account in Chronicles includes 16 more names added to the list, and there's some spelling variants, okay? Don't let spelling variants throw you, because sometimes people are called by a different name, or sometimes their name is spelled a little bit differently. And this is where having a good concordance and maybe having a, a commentary or a Bible dictionary will help you figure out, oh, this is the same guy. And sometimes that can be very helpful when you're reading and trying to grasp the understanding of what was happening there. So verses 10 through 47 uh, uh, speak of that. So verse 10, it says, Now these were the heads of the mighty men whom David had, who strengthened themselves with him in his kingdom, with all Israel, to make him king, according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. And this is the number of the mighty men whom David had. And this gentleman's name's Jashubim, the son of a Hakmonite, chief of the captains. And notice his exploits. He had lifted up his spear against 300, killed by him at one time. And so this Jashubim is the same as Josheb Bashebeth, <laughs> who was also called Adino the Esnite. And so here's a guy who has three names. And if you look at it uh, in 2 Samuel 23, verse 8, you'll see that this is the same man, but he's actually got three names to himself. So don't let that throw you. Just be aware of it. So verse 12, it says, After him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, who was one of the three mighty men. And he was with David at Pazdamim, who... Uh, now where now where excuse me I gotta slow down here now there the Philistines were gathered for battle and there was a place a piece of ground full of barley so the people fled from the Philistines but they stationed themselves in the middle of that field defended it and killed the Philistines so the Lord brought about a great victory so these mighty men are listed here. And it's interesting because in 2 Samuel, this group of men is mentioned at the very end, almost as an addendum. But here in Chronicles, it puts it right in the beginning, right after David was coronated king. He lists his mighty men right there. And these are men who are real warriors. These are the type of guys that um, we would look up to today. You know, there's not very many men like that in the world today. But these men were the guy, these were men's men. These were the ones who wouldn't be putting up with some of the stuff we're seeing today. These were men of renown. They were mighty men. They were skilled in battle. The best of the best, the creme de la creme. Now, verses 15 through 19 record an event while David and his men were held up or in a hold called Adullam. Now, Adullam was a cave, and some people have put Adullam over here. Uh, usually, some dictionaries have put Adullam over here on the western shore of the Dead Sea, but uh, uh, Adullam is actually right over in this area right here. And, um, you know, let me see where, where it would be, you know, like... Uh, be southwest of, of Bethlehem, pretty much in the middle of the land of Israel. I think it's called the Shephelah. 
uh, that, that area there. And that's where the Adullam's cave. And, and one of the interesting things about Israel, if you get to go, is as we're traveling, we go from the north to the south of Israel, and you're traveling along in all these hills, and you, you see these caves. They're everywhere. I'm not kidding. There are caves everywhere. I remember uh, when we were up near, um, right on the Sea of Galilee, there's a Mount Arbel. It's right there on the Sea of Galilee. And not too far away from that, I walked into, because we were walking down Arbel, and it was quite a treacherous thing. Uh, I don't know why they even let us do it, because literally you're walking out and holding a metal bar, and you're standing on a rock, and you make one slip, and you're dead, literally. And, I mean, they had no safety nets, nothing. I mean, this is totally un-American right? <laughs> it was very treacherous. So we finally get down the hill. I meet a bull on the way. You know, there's a bull standing in the, in the pathway looking at me with his big horns. I'm like, how you doing? And, uh, but anyway, I walked into a cave and there was a, just big piles of bat dung and everything. It's just really exciting. You got to go. You got to go. You got to go to Israel. But caves everywhere. And so David is holed up in one of these caves with his men and it's called Adullam. It was a cave, like I said, in the lowlands of Judah where they had hid. And it says, now three of the 30 chief men went down to the rock. So there, here is an event that happens while they're at Adullam's cave that is really worth note. <laughs> and that's why it's recorded here. It says, now three of the 30 chief men went down to the rock to David into the cave of Adullam and the army of the Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim and the valley of, of Rephaim is uh, just a little bit uh, north of where the Adullam's cave was and they encamped at Rephaim and so David was in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem which is even northeast and David said with longing and and you can understand David's just reminiscing because he came from Bethlehem that was where he was born he knew that area very he knew the streams and he was thinking to himself oh my goodness oh that someone would give me a drink of water from the well of Bethlehem which is by the gate and I don't believe that David was asking any of these men to actually do this, but it was just a longing in his heart because he knew how good the water was at Bethlehem. And so three men, unbeknownst to David, they just took off through the camp. of the Philistines, and they drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and they took it and they brought it to David. Nevertheless, David would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Far be it from me, O my God, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of these men who have put their lives in jeopardy? For at the risk of their lives they brought it, and therefore he would not drink it. And these things were done by the three mighty men. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine men being so devoted to a man? They loved David because of his character. David did indeed have an excellent character. He made his mistake later on when he, you know, but he was an excellent man. He wasn't a bloodthirsty man. He was an excellent warrior, but he wasn't a bloodthirsty man. He did what had to be done. He was a man of honesty. He was a man of integrity. He was a man of God. But these three men take off without David knowing it, and these men loved him. And think about that. They were willing to hazard their lives just to get him a drink of water, just to prove to him, David, we love you, we're with you. Man, where did that ever, where did that go? I mean, seriously, think about that. Where has that gone, that kind of devotion, that kind of, I would give my life for you? even for a drink of water from the well in Bethlehem. How great is that? That's why the Spirit of God put it here. So say what you will of David. We know of his triumphs and his sins and his mistakes, but one thing he was, was a man of honor and dignity. He was a worshiper of God, like I said. And here is an excellent display of the reverence that David had for God and the blood of other men, the reverence that he had for life. 
And this might have caused, think about this, these three men, after they see David pouring out this water to the Lord, think about how this might have caused these three men to feel. You know, I wonder, were they angry? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But David was showing true worship to God and displaying how much he valued the lives of these men. I mean, if I was one of those three guys and they were willing, he was willing to take that water and say, you know what, I am not worthy of this. Guys, I love you for even the thought of it, and I can't believe you did it. But I'm going to pour it out to God. I won't even put my lips to it because it means something so great. And I want you guys to understand that what you did was great worship, and we got to worship the one who gave us this amazing thing, this brotherhood, this amazing thing that's happening we got to bring Christ into the middle of it. And that's a good thing to do. Bring Christ in the middle. By pouring out the water to the Lord as a sacrifice and worship, what did he do? He elevated the worth of these three men, and hopefully they were blessed. And may we be willing to do whatever our King, Jesus, would ask us to do. I love Psalm 32. It says this. It's a Psalm of David. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. I love that psalm. I will guide you with my eye. What is that? Isn't that what David was doing, really, with these three men? He was just had his gaze fixed on something, and they, and they did it. And God is saying, I want to be like that with you. I can guide you with my eye. I don't even have to open my mouth and tell you. I'll just look in a certain direction, and you will have that understanding of my heart, my character, that you'll just do it. You won't even ask questions. How are we going to do this? How is it going to happen? You'll just do it. And that's what David, he says, and he's, he's, he's writing in the psalm, and, and God's speaking here in a sense. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. And what about Isaiah 65, verse 24? The Lord speaking concerning the millennium. Uh, yet future to us. It says, it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. <laughs> before they call, I will answer. That's just how great God is. It's almost like he's, he's, he's guiding with his eye. He's not even have to say anything. Before they even call, I'm going to answer them. Before they even have a need, and they even know that they have a need, I'm already going to provide the solution. See, that to me is something worth note. And that's something that the kind of relationship we want to have with God it requires sacrifice, doesn't it? And I'm not, I'm not claiming that I'm there yet, but I want to get there. I want to get to the place. And I, I don't think, folks, that it's going to happen easily either. But I don't think there's anything we have to work to get it. I just think we have to really desire it. Do you really want to hear the voice of God? Have you been obedient to the, what he's already shown you? Are you willing to be obedient to what he tells you to do? Because it's people like that that God will speak secrets to you. Because he knows you're going to answer them. You're gonna, he's going to guide you with, with his eye and you're just going to go do it. So verse 20. We're just going to go through chapter 11 tonight. Um, so Abishai, the brother of Joab. So again, Abishai is, because he's the brother of Joab, that means this is another of David's nephews. Do you see that? So David had a sister, Zeruiah. Zeruiah had three sons, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. And every one of those three brothers were David's nephews. And every one of them were on David's mighty men. They were men who stood by David. The blood, what was that phrase? Blood is thicker than water. You don't mess with family like that. These guys were brothers. It kind of reminds me of, you know, like some tight, you know, you just don't mess with this family. You poke the finger in one eye and you got a bunch of brothers coming after you. They mean business. That's the kind of thing it was. They would give their lives for David. Isn't that amazing? Of the three, he was more honored than the other two. Therefore, he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first three. So what we're seeing here, this can be a little confusing because I had to read this passage a couple times. You have groups of 30 men, and each of these groups of 30 men have 
three that are over the 30, okay? So if you keep that in mind, all of this will make a little more sense. Because if you don't have that understanding, you're going to think, well, I've seen six men, and there's still, a, you know, it's of, a, of another 30 men. Groups three over another 30 men, if that makes any sense. So Benaniah was the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from Kabzeel, who had done many deeds. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He also had gone down and killed a lion in the pit, in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. Here's a guy you don't want to mess with. He didn't even have a Glock 43. He just had a, uh, uh, um, <laughs> I like that. And he didn't have you know, multiple clips. He went down into this pit on a snowy day and he defeated and killed this lion. What an amazing guy. On a snowy day when you can't feel your fingers because it's so cold. And yes, it did get cold over in Israel. It does from time to time. And even sometimes it snowed in Jerusalem, which is unusual, but it does happen. And it says in verse 23, And he, speaking of Benaniah, he killed an Egyptian, a man of great height, five cubits tall, which is seven and a half feet tall. In the Egyptian's hand there was a spear like a weaver's beam, and he went down to him with just a staff, and he wrested the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. How humiliating humiliating is that you know you got this little guy going up against this goliath creature and he goes down there with just a uh you know a shepherd's staff and this guy's got this huge sword he just knocks it out of his hand then kills him with it i mean that's you don't want to write home to mom about that one and these things benaiah the son of jehoiada did and won a name among the three mighty men he won the name because of his valiantry Indeed, he was more honored than the 30, but he did not attain to the first three. And David appointed him over his guard. Also, the mighty warriors were Asahel. Here is the other brother of Joab, right? David's other uh, nephew. Okay, Here, here's Asahel, the, father, the brother of Joab. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem. And then uh, there's a bunch of names list, listed here, but let's just go ahead and uh, skip down to verse 41. Um, and you're going to see a name that's really interesting. One of David's mighty men, notice in verse 41, Uriah the Hittite. Does that ring a bell with anybody? Who was Uriah the Hittite? Yeah, the husband of who? Bathsheba, right? That's right. Uriah the Hittite. Think of that. He was one of David's mighty men, and yet David, in a moment of weakness, sleeps with his wife, gets her pregnant while the other men are out in battle, tries to cover it up. He tries to, get, he tries to get Uriah to go in. He calls him back from the battle after he had had this relationship with her. And then he, has, he wants him to go in and stay the night with his wife, assuming what would happen. And he had more integrity than David, and he wouldn't do it. So finally, David had to have him killed out on the battlefield to cover up. His sin. And then David swoops in. Oh, she's pregnant. Oh, I'll be the father of this child of Uriah's and Bathsheba's. I'm that kind of guy. I'll even support him. Because he's one of my guys, you know, he's one of my mighty men. And and the hypocrisy of David at that moment. Think of how that would just kill you inside. And, And he writes a psalm about it, right? Read Psalm 32, read Psalm 51. David was wrestled with this for a year before he just popped. And God busted him. And his heart was in shambles. It was killing him like a cancer. It was eating him alive. He was so guilty. And yet God forgave him. How great is your God? Is he great? God is great. So Uriah the Hittite, you can read about that whole thing that happened with David and Bathsheba and Uriah in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. So Uriah the Hittite, and then Zabad the son of Alahi. So this Uriah the Hittite, the Hittites were located north of Israel in what we would call Syria today, and it's interesting that David had a man 
whose people group God told the children of Israel to wipe out. This man was in David's army. I mean, you remember in Deuteronomy, we were not going to go there tonight, but in Deuteronomy 7, the first 11 verses, in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 16 through 18, it tells us that God told the people of, of Israel to go into these, the land of Canaan and wipe out everything, everything and everybody. But they didn't do that. But one man, out of all of that, David takes under his wing because he's a valiant man. He's a, he's a good man. And he was. He had great integrity. So verse 42, And then Adina, the son of Shiza, the Reubenite, a chief of the Reubenites, and 30 with him. And... Um, and then through the rest of the chapter, through verse 47, we have more names of David's mighty men. But we're going to stop there tonight. Um, but, but I love this, that God you know, records for us these, these men who had great skills and abilities. And they all came and flocked to David. And David needed an army. He was going to be faced with many challenges. That He would be faced with defeating the Philistines. Those in the land that should have been rooted out a long time ago, but now they're still going to be rooted out. There's still going to be battles because of what the children of Israel failed to do back in Joshua. Remember when God told them to, to come into the land and then they were to wipe out everybody, every living thing, and they failed to do it. And now, fast forward a couple hundred years, and now the problems still remain, and they're still fighting. They're still fighting the battles that should have been fought way in the past. And it makes you wonder the decisions that we make, you know? I mean, think of it. Had they made that, those decisions back then to actually follow through and completely root out what God told them to do, if they had just been obedient back then, most of the Bible... <laughs> would be silent. The battles that they had to endure. In fact, who knows whether Israel would have fallen into idolatry quicker, as quick as they did. Had they got those pagan idolatrous people, had they eradicated them from the land. Yes, and that's a hard thing, but you know what? God is serious about sin. And we don't like to talk about that. But he's serious about it. And what would have happened if they were obedient? Everything in the present now in David's life would be so much different. Had the children of Israel, his forefathers, had they been obedient. And my point in this whole thing is, how important is a decision to obey? Because had they obeyed, it would have affected, there would have been a clean, cleaner slate. I mean, would problems still have come up? Certainly but they wouldn't be faced with what they were facing with had they been obedient back then. Do you, do you follow? So my point is, think of the decisions that you and I make every day and, and choose to do the right thing, even when it's difficult, even when it's hard to do the right thing. And I believe we all know this. Doing the right thing is very rarely the easiest thing to do. It's, such, it's so much easier to just put it off another day. It's so much easier to just pretend that it doesn't exist now, and I'll deal with it tomorrow, I'll deal with it next week, next month, next year, when I graduate, when I, you know, when I, when I finally you know, I retire and move somewhere else. I'll deal with it then. No, deal with it today, because the decisions that we make today have ramifications. There are blessings for obedience and there are consequences for disobedience so important for us to remember and you can't worry about your mistakes that you've made in the past right now you and I as we stand here tonight we can't worry about those things put them under the blood of Christ ask him to forgive you and his promise the promise is he will forgive you if you put your trust in him Forget about all that stuff then. And then it's basically right now in the present, moving forward. Choose 
to do what God has told you to do. Choose to do what the Bible has told you. Follow this, not what's happening anywhere else, because the world has no morals. But this book is full of God's will for your life. If you follow God's will and his word, it's not going to be easy, but your life is going to be a blessing. And people are going to pay attention to you. Because you will be like unlike anybody else in the world. Because you're obedient to your God. You be obedient to your God and let everybody else do what they want. You can't, you can't make them do anything. But let's focus, church, us. Tomorrow, tonight, I'm going to make decisions that are holy. I'm going to make decisions that are going to be a blessing. I'm going to make decisions based upon what is here. Let's stand together. Lord, we come before you tonight, and we we thank you, Lord, for these passages. We we thank you for everything we've looked at tonight, Lord. And and it does. It brings a a gravity to our life. It, It makes us feel that we sense the urgency. We sense the time fleeing away from us. And Lord, for many of us in this room, we've got more years behind us than we have in front of us. And Lord, let's help us, Lord, to endeavor to live those final years, however long they are, 20, 30, 40 years, whatever they are. May they be the best years of our lives in Christ. And Lord, you've never, you never promised us a cakewalk on this side of things. Because, Lord, we know there's a spiritual battle and it's raging all around us. And, Lord, to do the right thing, most people are going to be against us. Even our own family members are going to not want to have anything to do with us. People we work with, even members of the church will look at us with crossed eyes. And, Lord, help us to not worry about any of that. Help us to be like David was much of the time in his life where he just, he inquired of you and he did what you told him to do. He simply did it. He was obedient. Lord, make me that man. Make me that man. And I pray for my brothers and sisters tonight that you'd make them men and women just like that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.